in battle, in forest, at the precipice and the mountains, on the dark great sea, in the midst of javelins and arrows, in sleep, in confusion, in the depths of shame, the good deeds a man has done before defend him. Good deeds a man has done before help him embrace the void. Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist. You are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 138 of Embrace the Void, where there is an appropriate amount of shame in our game. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got a really fun chat on a negative emotion that I suspect a lot of our listeners struggle with. Hopefully this will help you feel a little less bad about that. So let's make with the void. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something... My guest this week is Krista Thomason, an associate professor of philosophy at Swarthmore College with an emphasis in all the ethical good stuff. Krista, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, everybody. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. You are uh, someone who was suggested to us by a colleague of yours and friend of the show, and I'm really excited to, to chat about your work some. Yeah, no, it's really exciting to be here, and 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 thanks to Chris for the invitation. If I'm allowed to name him, yeah, absolutely, name and shame. <laughs> That's the way this works, right? Yeah. Uh, if you can't if you can't call him out by name, we can't correct his behavior. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> yeah. So he he turned me on to some of the stuff that you've worked on, which very much is in the sort of like quote unquote dark side of ethics mm-hmm. in a variety yeah. of kinds of ways. So um, let me just first mention you wrote a book on shame in particular, which is titled <laughs> "Naked: The Dark Side." of shame and moral life which i just wanted to first compliment you is a very nice title it's got a lot of thirst trap built into it which i really (laughs) appreciate um what do you see as the association between shame and nakedness that led you to that particularly saucy title Right. Yes, that was uh, one of the things I did not anticipate about naming my book. That was that I would get impl- I would get emails from my publisher that had things like flyers attached to it, promotional flyers for my book that said Thomason naked. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I mean, that's so how you fill the seats. Let's be honest about here. that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, it was uh, it was actually so the the inspiration for the title came from uh, the the motivation for writing the book. So I started to read the traditional philosophical literature about shame, and when I read that stuff, I would find a lot of what I would describe as genteel examples. There were a lot of, uh, oh, this person rejects a, a gift from their parent. Um, this person feels shame because they shoplifted something from a store. This person feels shame because they were bad at tennis. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, uh, okay, I guess those are examples of shame, but 
where are all the naked people? Because <laughs> a question when I, think of I Shane, often ask myself. No, that's a good one. Yeah. Where are all the naked people? Um, no, I, I thought, okay, well, what about all of the examples of shame that I guess I identify as examples of shame? You know, the the sort of like being seen in compromising positions, the shame that we feel about being caught, you know, having sex. Like, where are those kinds of examples and because none of them were there i thought well how do these accounts in the literature deal with these sorts of cases and Mm -hmm. as i read i decided they don't deal with them particularly well and so maybe what we need is an account of shame that takes those kinds of examples seriously and puts them sort of front and center and says okay well what do these things tell us about shame uh-huh. I'm as much as I want to hear all that, I'm also tempted to dive into your backstory because I'm really curious to know what, you know, but we, we often joke that like philosophy, when you read it, tells you more about the philosopher in particular rather than the world <laughs> itself. And so I'm curious, like what turned you into the uh, the Batman of being interested in naked, <laughs> sexy shame time? Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess it was. Um, that's a good question. I don't know if it's anything in particular. My background no specific, is not... like really specific yeah. story or something. No, like no, it's actually it's not even like I, my life is not that interesting, but it, um, uh-huh. but I do, I think I felt, uh, I think I ha- I am a person who probably feels self-conscious about a lot of things. And so I think I'm mm-hmm. used to that sort of, you know, minding how people see me. I think I, I think that probably is true. And in some sense that I think comes out in the, in the account of shame, but it, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I got into to moral philosophy because it was, it was the stuff that seemed to contain, all of the questions that I really found really compelling. Mm-hmm. And it's the part of people that is sort of the not so nice, the not so pretty, the not so generous. Um, that part of moral psychology, I, I feel is, there's not a lot in moral psychology that deals with all of those things. The, the moral psychology that you frequently read uh, has a kind mm. of positive spin. There's a lot of positive emotions. There's a lot of, you know, people being kind and generous and compassionate. And I'm sort of like, yeah, but where are all the assholes? Like, there's a lot of those people <laughs> out there in the world. And shouldn't moral philosophy tell us a little something about them and about the kind of darker parts of our psychology? So I think, I think it was... Uh, that stuff has always been attractive to me, but it was also my advisor in graduate school was, was really into this kind of stuff. Like he, you know, Mm -hmm. he writes this like famous paper on torture. And so that was the, he, he, I think was also a kind of, he was an early um, influence in my thinking about this and trying to sort of show there's all this complexity to human life. And I think philosophy does what it does well when it tries to attack and understand that sort of complexity. Mm-hmm. So do you see this as sort of like a pushback on the, you know, I often associate with stoicism or cognitive behavioral therapy, various kinds of programs that are uh, sort of their their approach to negative emotions is largely mm-hmm. don't have them or right. have them in a very, very dampened, very right. like uh, Vulcan kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that something that you feel like you are at sort of actively pushing back on in your work that you are trying to say that there is more space that needs to be made for the use of these particular and the, and the, the role of these particular emotions in our ethical lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, that is like my mission. (laughs) It's my mission in philosophy is to sort of try to show that these 
negative emotions are not, you do not have to be a person who only feels positive feelings in order to be recognizable as a moral agent and also a good person. It's, mm-hmm. it, we're complicated and it's okay for us to feel these kinds of feelings and to have these sorts of experiences. And it's not a requirement of morality for us to only have positive, happy, you know, the warm, fuzzy feelings for sure. Okay. So yeah, I want, I want to talk about why those things are valuable, but I also think we should work through at least the concern, mm-hmm. sort of an explanation for folks who aren't familiar with this literature about yeah. why people sort of group several emotions into these kind of negative, or, or you describe them as like Jekyll and Hyde emotions at mm-hmm. one point. Um, mm-hmm. And that like, there's this kind of fundamental tension at the heart of the use of these emotions or the role of their emotions. Um, so maybe let's talk specifically about shame. We haven't, we haven't yet done our philosophy duty of like trying to define the term right, so i was right, just right. curious if you wanted if it's not too cruel a question do you want to try to give sort of your definition of shame and then talk about some about the, the tension at the heart of shame yeah so so in the book i argue that shame is my tagline is shame is a tension between our self-conception and our identity so when we experience shame when we have feelings of shame what we are experiencing is um a kind of uh, break or a, a separation between how you see yourself, what I call your self-conception, and some other thing about you that you both recognize as yours, so you see it as you know part of your identity, but it doesn't necessarily feature comfortably into how you see yourself. So the example mm-hmm. that I like to give is you know someone, for example, from a kind of working class background. They might feel shame about their working class background because they, on the one hand, recognize that it's their background. So that's how they, you know, it's not as though that's alien or foreign to them. Um, They recognize it as part of who they are, but they may not see themselves as being particularly defined by that thing, as embracing that thing, as even really recognizing that thing as part of their self-conception. So Mm -hmm. shame, I think, tends to collect around those things that are parts of our identities, things we sort of recognize as ours, but things that we often feel alienated from or divorced from in terms of how we see ourselves. Um, So that's why I describe it as this kind of, when we experience these feelings, it's this kind of tension between our self-conception or identity where this thing that I didn't really see as part of who I was, now all of a sudden is kind of like forced into this bright light or feels like it looms really large in Mm -hmm. my vision of myself um, Mm -hmm. in a way that it didn't before. Right, that makes sense, and that we we've talked before on the show about various kinds of you know the Buddhists talk about the suffering that can come from the conflict between your sense of identity and then the reality in various kinds of mm-hmm. uh, ways. And there was another distinction it seemed like that you included in your book when you were talking about this this Jekyll and Hyde uh, conflict, which is. Um, not just between sort of identity and um, sort of self-conception or reality and but also between the good kinds of shame and the bad kinds of shame right. that a lot of the literature it seems like that you were describing is about um, cl- you know separating out the good kinds of shame and the bad kinds mm-hmm. of shame and then figuring out how we can get the good kind and not the bad kind maybe that's right. or something mm-hmm. like that is that is that sort of accurate to how you see the literature yes. and do you feel like that's a good approach or... Right. Yeah, that's that is how I see the literature. It's it's particularly, I think, a, a kind of hallmark of what I in the book I call the traditional view. Mm-hmm. And I completely understand where the traditional view comes from. They they see feelings of shame 
as in some cases really valuable because it seems like the way they describe it, it seems like, oh, look, we feel shame when we fail to live up to values that we think are really important. So when uh, it's not just about actions, right? So this is one of the ways they distinguish shame from guilt. Guilt is really about actions and shame is really about character. So I feel mm. I might feel guilt when I do some wrong thing if I cheat at poker. But even about that same thing, I might still feel shame, but I might feel shame because I'm a cheater, right? It says something about my character as a whole. And they look at those kinds of experiences, the traditional view, and they'll say, well, look, uh, shame looks like a really valuable emotional experience in these sorts of cases because it's about failures of character. And isn't that important in our moral life? Don't we want to have shame there as a signal that we failed to be the kind of people that we want to be? Well, Unfortunately, when it comes to the kinds of cases that I'm interested in, right, all the naked cases, mm -hmm. uh, it seems a little bit hard to figure out what value or ideal you failed to live up to, right? And so they'll oftentimes try mm -hmm. to kind of put those cases into the framework and go like, oh, well, it's like modesty or something like that. But oftentimes the things that we feel shame about are not things that we're even in control of. They're things we're not responsible for. They're parts of our identity that were not voluntarily chosen by us. So it mm -hmm. seems really hard to call those things failures. So then what they end up doing is just sort of saying, well, look, there are the good moral kinds of shame, the ones that are about character. And then there are kinds of shame that are, you know, whatever, the naked examples or the shame about, you know, being low class or all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's not real shame. That's false shame somehow. That's the bad kind. And we can have the good kind without the bad kind. And mm -hmm. that's the kind of move that I want to resist because I think it forces us into this position where we have to say there are two different kinds of shame happening. And I think there's not two different kinds of shame. There's just one kind of shame. The only thing that differentiates those two kinds is one set of cases you like and the other set of cases you don't. <laughs> but uh -huh. I don't think that means they're mistaken somehow. Okay, so so you wouldn't like say you actually think that the lower class individuals should feel shame. You just right. think that they they shouldn't feel shame, but that the shame that they're experiencing is fundamentally not distinct from the moral kinds of shame. Right, exactly. the The move is is frequently because that looks like a case where someone shouldn't feel shame. Mm -hmm. Therefore, their feelings must be irrational, mistaken, misguided somehow. And it's so that move that I want to resist, right? Like somebody might intelligibly feel shame about those things. And it makes sense to us why they would feel shame. That doesn't mean they should, but it also doesn't mean that their feelings are somehow fundamentally irrational, mistaken, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the reason I don't love that move is because I think it tends to kind of posit this rational failure onto large groups of people who mm -hmm. seem to have actually perfectly intelligible reasons for why they feel shame, right? So people with um, physical disabilities oftentimes feel more shame than others. People who have suffered from mental illness, people who suffer from addiction, women oftentimes feel more shame. People of color feel more shame. Uh, people from lower classes feel more shame. And it looks like we've got to say all those people are irrational and mistaken somehow despite the mm -hmm. fact that their shame is really pervasive, despite the fact that it seems like they have intelligible reasons for why they feel it. Again, not that they should, but I don't think we have to say there's something wrong with them because they feel those feelings. Uh -huh. So it seems like in some sense you're, you're kind of resisting a no true Scotsmaning of like a bunch of these different kinds of shame that we want to yeah. say that they are still a part, an important part 
of this category. And it also, and I'm, I'm not sure if you make this explicit or, or agree with this, but it seems like it's connected at least to one of the examples you give in, the, in your book, which is this is a very virtue theory kind of sounding account of, of shame, it feels to me, that it's it's so much about character versus specific mm-hmm. actions, as you were saying earlier, and it's about right. our, our conception of ourself. Um, and I, you, you mentioned in the book a, a central sort of example that you give is the character Ajax. Yeah. Since, since it is tied to virtue theory and since he is of mm-hmm. the ancients in that kind of way, do you want to maybe explain a little bit about like who mm-hmm. Ajax is, why you think he's a good stalking horse for your view, especially this idea that like there's a problem with views that just shunt a bunch of kinds of shame into a uh, bad psychology box in that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, Ajax. So I'm thinking of Ajax as the the tragedy from Sophocles, mm-hmm. uh, which I loved for a really long time. Um, I was a, a part classics major when I was an undergraduate, and so I loved all the I love all that stuff. Um, but Ajax factors into some of the traditional literature on shame as a kind of example of uh, this is supposed to be the dark side of shame, right? Here's a person who commits suicide because he loses his reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, it, it, for those not familiar with the tragedy, right, he is uh, struck uh, mad because of um, uh, Athena's intervention and um, ends up <laughs> God's slaughtering. Gods be doing God stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know? right? You know, that's how they do. Um, uh, and he ends up uh, he plots this sort of revenge on the generals, but he ends up getting he ends up slaughtering all of the animals in camp because he's struck with this kind of blind madness. And then he realizes what he's done after he sort of comes to his senses and says, like, Oh my God, I look like a fool because I killed all these cattle and I was putting them on this like in this fake trial and I was doing all this histrionics and everybody saw me. Um, so now I have to kill myself. Um, and that's the sort of uh, what I think of as a kind of like flat-footed sort of interpretation of what happens with Ajax. A lot of people will point to him as the kind of quintessential example of this is why shame is bad. Because you have this person who commits suicide after losing his reputation, and he is an example of sort of this, you know, regressive feature of shame. This is mm-hmm. this is the the quintessential sort. Of, this is why we should get over shame because it's associated with this kind of backwards um, honor culture like view mm-hmm. of the world. That's the sort of thought, right? And. Right. Um, the liberal progressive model, Yeah, just the kind of liberal progressive model that I think a lot of us are sort of sympathetic to, that these were the tools of, you know, a structure that we want to move beyond rather than, than continue to instill in our children or something. Right, right, exactly. Um, and I just think there's so much more going on to the story of Ajax than just that, right? It's not so much about reputation. It's not It's not as though he's beyond criticism for the kinds of decisions that he makes. But um, what's so interesting about Ajax, everybody says, well, it's about reputation. It's about reputation, right? But what's so interesting about Ajax is he has no problem with the fact that if he had actually carried out his plan, he would have been a murderer. That hmm. doesn't cause him any shame. But the idea of looking like a raving madman, that mm-hmm. does. So he he prefers the sort of character of the violent, vengeful murderer over the raving lunatic. And that was the part of Ajax that I thought, why, why on the traditional view would it be okay for him to prefer this character, right, the murderous character, that's okay. That doesn't cause him shame. But the raving madman does. Mm-hmm. 
And that was the part that I thought made him so interesting as a kind of study, because if it's just about failing to live up to ideals, I think the traditional view doesn't really explain why Ajax would have that preference. Yeah, I wonder if that's something along the lines of sort of the privileging of the rational virtues over the the moral virtues, almost in a sense that like mm-hmm. better better to be a rational person than an ethical person if those things right. you know or, or be viewed as such. You know, obviously, yeah. like that's that's a slightly different idea being versus mm-hmm. being viewed as. But yeah, I think that's that is really yeah weird, and it ties in with what you were saying about how it, this the this traditional view is that there is this kind of mental illness um, that is is leading to this kind of shame and that ideally, mm-hmm. I guess, a fully virtuous person would have zero shame, it seems like. Yeah, um, I think that's on some views that would be true. Right. And you're, you seem critical of that, which I think uh, we'll talk about here in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so my sense is you, you move through a couple of different views in the book of yeah. uh, accounts of shame. So you move from this traditional view, which you've explained why you see that as unsatisfying, to a kind of naturalist account that is mm-hmm. probably something closer to what a lot of our listeners might, you know, who are pro-science might believe mm-hmm. about um, shame. Do you want to kind of give a sense of what that view is and why you think that is better than the traditionalist view, but still kind of falls short? Yeah, definitely. The thing about the naturalist view is I think they, I think they take seriously, well, both, both views sort of look at this, what I call the variety problem. So it, it seems like we can sh- feel shame about a million different things. Some of those things are moral. Some of those things seem non-moral. Some of those things we can control. Some of them we can't. Um, mm-hmm. So what are we supposed to do about that? So the traditional view tries to kind of divide shame into the good and bad kinds. And the thing that the naturalist view does is to sort of resist that move, but then to sort of say, okay, let's accept the variety thing. Let's accept that we can feel shame about all sorts of different stuff. So let's try to explain shame by looking at whatever its role would be in a kind of evolutionary psychology story. So Mm -hmm. frequently the story that you get from the naturalist view is that shame is a kind of it evolved to be an emotion that promotes pro-social behavior because we um, agree to live by societal norms. That's sort of the general story. So shame is still about failing to live up to norms, but these are just socially constructed norms. They're not moral norms. And when we feel shame, it's because we have recognized that we have violated one of these norms. And it just so happens that most of these norms tend to promote pro-social behavior. But then it doesn't, they don't run into the problem of good and bad kinds of shame. It's just any kind of shame is about sort of pro-social behavior in some sense. And so that's how you get, well, you feel shame about character norms, but you also feel shame about being poor because, well, being poor is, you know, not something you're supposed to be in this particular sort of society. Um, uh-huh. That tends to be the sort of naturalistic views explanation. Um, now, you'd still get a distinction there between better and worse kinds of shame in the sense of shame that was more or less adaptive in various kinds of ways. It just might yeah. give us different answers about things like whether being lower class, if it really is mm-hmm. maladaptive, you should feel shame right. for it on that view. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So they would still get sort of some kind of um, this, you know, this kind of shame is, yeah, exactly. They would get a kind of like maladaptive sort of story about different kinds of shame. Um, the thing about the naturalist view is that it, uh, first of all, I think it's a little unclear about the norms, right? So in the okay. cases, one of the cases that I describe is the, you know, teenage boy gets caught masturbating, feels shame. 
So mm-hmm. pretty standard case, I would think. At least that's, you know, in my view, that seems like a pretty like familiar case of shame. So what norm has he violated? Um, well, it's it depends on how you understand the norm, because on the one hand, it's pretty commonplace that we think teenage boys masturbate like that's It's not like anybody's surprised by that information. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there's some norm against that in the sense that it's a normal kind of behavior and people seem to accept that it happens. Um, they end up running into the same. If you want to say, well, it's a norm of, you know, whatever chastity or modesty or something like that. They run into right. the same problem that the traditional view does when what happens if you, you know, your mom barges in on you and you thought you locked your door. This is not a fault of yours in any way. It's not like you were, you know, masturbating out in public or something. So in what sense have you reasonably violated that norm through no fault of your own? It se- Again, it seems like why would you feel shame about those, about that particular case, um, in that mm-hmm. particular case? So I think there's a little bit of a problem with them, with the norm story is not so straightforward like exactly what we mean when we say social norms is not so straightforward. Um, It's also the case that I think the naturalistic view has trouble with the moral stuff. So Mm -hmm. now they run themselves into the problem of, well, we do think of shame as at least some way connected to moral life in a way that feels non-accidental. And um, we do morally evaluate it. So we think shamelessness is, is bad. And we think that there are some kinds of shame that seem obviously good and obviously not good. And their sort of story about how that's supposed to work just uh, kind of drops out, in part because mm-hmm. they want to embrace the variety of cases. So they want to be able to accommodate the non-moral and the moral. But then once they end up doing that, they end up sort of like abdicating this way of figuring out what's the moral part of shame and what's the non-moral part of shame. So I think as an explanation of the phenomenon, it doesn't quite work as well as you would think. Well, yeah. So it would seem to me that that kind of naturalist model would would pair well with a kind of anti-realism about moral truths and a probably a skepticism towards traditional moral and social norms that would yeah. leave you with, you know, what is I think the right answer in certain questions like, should you feel shame when someone catches you masturbating as a teenager? The answer, I think there is no, like, mm-hmm. the, like ethically speaking, you, you all, like maybe you do and maybe it counts as legitimate shame, but like mm-hmm. we would hopefully help you to not sort of, you know, have that shame turn into resentment and and neuroses and and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what you end up getting is the kind of outcome where a lot of modern folks think that you shouldn't feel shame about a lot of things, right? It seems like shame is largely speaking bad, except for even, you know, except for a limited number of moral cases. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, if you get really serious, as we do on the show about like, the luck of psychology, it starts, you start to wonder if maybe you should really be feeling shame for anything by the end of this. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. So yeah, so that's, is that kind of, you describe a shift from the naturalist model to a kind of pessimistic account. Yeah, um, right. Mm-hmm. And this this is, seems like what you're getting at there. Um, but yes. you, see, you you want to reject that account, it sounds I like. I do, I do. Yeah, okay. yeah. The pessimistic view, yeah, there's kind of like the three players in the game are the kind of naturalist view, the traditional view, and the pessimistic view. And the pessimistic view are the folks who say, look, 
all this thing about shame, you, you look at the variety of cases, you see how much damage shame can do. You see that people can really engage in various kinds of destructive behavior when they feel shame. Um, and it seems like all backwards, all regressive, all damaging and harmful. And so mm -hmm. if that's the case, you know what, let's just get over it. Let's let guilt come in and do the job for shame. Um, any other kind of host of emotions, maybe disappointment, something else. Let's let's only focus on the positive rather than judging ourselves negatively in these ways. Shame just seems hopeless in, and mm -hmm. totally incorrigible. And so the pessimistic view says, let's just ax it all. Um, and yeah, I reject that view. Um, I don't think that just because shame has this sort of variety and that we feel it about in these kind of strange cases that it's necessarily something that has no moral value. So I want to be on the same team with the traditional view, at least mm -hmm. on one level, because I want to say, no, no, shame is a valuable moral emotion. It's just that the reason it's morally valuable is not because it's a, it's a registering of our failures to live up to our values, but rather um, it's, the, it's a part of our moral psychology that is um, linked to our ability to kind of see other people as having certain sort of standing in our lives. Yeah, this is what you, I think you call your constitutive model. Do yes. you want to mm -hmm. maybe unpack a little bit sort of yeah. why you see this as um, uh, an important part of our understanding of moral value? Yeah, I want to say that um, shame is constitutive of our... Um, abilities to recognize that our self-conceptions are limited and that we don't we're not always the people that we take ourselves to be so the way that i do that is instead of thinking i think the traditional way of looking at at emotions like this mm -hmm. is to say okay well in this case it's good and in this case it's bad and episodes like this are good and episodes like this are bad and so i mm -hmm. want to actually move away from what i call the episodic model of value of evaluating emotions and i want to say no it's not so much that each case we, we don't evaluate the value of an emotion based on each case of that emotion but rather mm -hmm. step back and think what role does it play in our life more generally so yeah there are going to be some good cases and some bad cases but the question for me is does it overall play the right kind of role in moral life and the, the role that i think shame plays in moral life is to say you know look when you are susceptible to shame it's because you realize that there's more going on to who you are than who you think you are and you as a moral person are in some sense responsible for all of the parts of yourself that aren't even that aren't necessarily just how you see yourself and hmm. part of what it means for you to be susceptible to shame is to recognize that to recognize the limits of your own self-conception but it's also to recognize that other people are out there independently sort of evaluating you and that you have to take into account the kinds of ways that you appear to them even if how you appear to them is not how you appear to yourself. Interesting. I'm, and I have to ask because it's required reading for this class. But um, <laughs> you know, how do you square that with the kind of modern psychology stuff that I was mentioning there? The kind of concerns about moral luck that you get from folks like Nagel. You, you sort of mentioned that we have mm -hmm. we have some responsibility for our character. Yeah. How do you cash out that idea of responsibility? Yeah, responsibility, I don't mean anything. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I don't want to think of anything too particularly freighted. 
but rather I'm this is so the perspective I'm kind of drawing on here is coming from feminist philosophy, particularly people like Chester Calhoun, who recognizes that uh, there's morality, right, as we mm -hmm. sort of understand it from the kind of philosophical perspective. And then there's what she calls the social practice of morality, which is when you and I are doing our life together, you know, living our moral life together, we've got to hash out sort of the details of how morality plays out in everybody's life. And the social practice part is the part where we are, um, uh, I am interacting with other people and I may want to come across a certain way to them, but uh, I don't always do that because we're engaging in, you know, different kinds of interpretations of people's behavior and what people say. And, you know, people can come to certain conclusions about the kind of person that I am, regardless of what I say. And even though I may not have to, you know, accept exactly what other people think of me, I can't pretend it's not real. And I can't pretend it's not, mm -hmm. it, it, it faces me, right? The, if mm -hmm. I, like, let's say, you know, I, not, I may not think of myself as a particularly bossy person, let's say, but let's suppose actually there's like several people who do interact with me as though I am a bossy person. So mm -hmm. what am I supposed to do as a moral agent? Um, is it the right thing for me to do to just flat out ignore ignore all of those things and act like they're not saying words to me? Uh, I don't think so, right? So even if I don't necessarily agree with those kinds of evaluations, I think as a kind of mature moral person, I have to, I have to accept that um, the, the way that I am in social space is in part something I have to kind of contend with. And I've got to sort of negotiate that with other people because I might be wrong about myself. Uh huh. Yeah, you say at one point, um, a shameless person is bad because she takes her own self conception to be the determining factor in her self estimation. Yeah. So you are, in a sense, it seems like saying we should care about other, what other people think about us. Right. And 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 my feelings in this, and I don't know if you, um, meta ethically or meaning again. Maybe I'm loading on my own personal beliefs here, but like my feeling was that there was a little bit of shade throwing about subjectivist and anti realist frameworks in your mm -hmm. view. Maybe going along with the fact that it feels kind of virtue theory to me is that like. Mm -hmm you there is a fact of the matter about your character and it is related to how others see you and not just how you see yourself and that mm -hmm. there are sort of even if it's all shame there are like more and less correct instances i know you don't want to you know um make it case by case like that but yeah. like a good life is one where in general you respond to sh with with proper shame to things that you ought to feel shame towards is that is that mm -hmm. sort of how you see the good life in this kind of way um, so, well, so this is the part least. of the view. No, this is the part of the view that actually gets me in trouble, right? So I, okay. I'm a person who doesn't, I want to actually avoid the claims about things you should or shouldn't feel shame about. And in part, it's it's not so much, it doesn't really have anything to do with meta-ethical views. It has more to do with what I think shame is. So shame is a feeling that has to do with your relationship to yourself. Mm -hmm. And given that that's the case, it's a little bit difficult for some third party to adjudicate your relationship to yourself. So what do I mean by that? Hmm. Like, let's suppose I feel shame about something about like my, so the example I use in the book is like, let's say I have a crooked nose and let's suppose I feel shame about my crooked nose. 
So for very compassionate reasons, people might think, oh, no, you shouldn't feel shame about your crooked nose. Because why? Well, look, all noses look different and there's nothing wrong and you didn't have, there's no control. It's not your part of your moral character, blah, blah, blah. There's all sorts of reasons people can give me for why I shouldn't feel shame about my nose. Um, what they actually mean by that is they just don't want me to feel bad about something that it seems I shouldn't feel bad about. But because shame is really about me and my sort of it, that experience is about my self-conception versus my identity. Um, if that if my crooked nose is sort of like looming really large in my sense of myself and it feels like it overshadows the rest of me, that's how I am feeling about myself. Right. So I am you can tell me I ought not feel shame all day long, but I'm. I still feel it, right? So there is, for me, shame can be intelligible and unintelligible, but there's not a sense that it can be like, I ought not feel shame about it. Usually just means, gosh, I don't want you to feel bad about this. But that ought uh -huh. is not a particularly strong ought in my mind. And again, part of the problem is I'm, I want to resist what I think of as a kind of emotional policing that people tend to do because you feel shame about that thing. And I don't think you should feel shame about that thing because I have a, you know, liberal progressive worldview and that's not the sort of thing we feel shame about in our liberal progressive worldview. Well, that's fine, but it doesn't actually do anything to address my feelings of shame about mm -hmm. my crooked nose, about my, my class status, about, you know, any of that stuff. So uh, I actually kind of want to resist the idea that there is some set of cases we can identify as these are the things you ought to feel shame about. And these are the things you ought not to feel shame about. So, uh, yeah. So it makes it a little harder to habituate yourself, I guess, into feeling the right kind of shame in the right, right ways at the right time, potentially, exactly, or yeah. that actually figuring out what that means. Now, it also sounds like what you're describing here ties back to your discussion about morality and rationality. That, mm -hmm. like, maybe part of the reason that folks feel like they want to say, don't feel shame about your crooked nose is because it seems to them irrational to feel shame right. about something that you didn't have any responsibility for. And they don't want you to be an right. irrational person. Right. So they're kind of telling you, you know, drop your irrational emotions. And then right. I think in the book, you tied this to um, the moralistic fallacy. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to explain maybe what that fallacy yeah. is a little bit and why, again, just reiterating some of the stuff you were saying earlier about why right. you're resisting that in this way? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the moralistic fallacy comes from Darms and Jacobson, um, this like really famous paper for those of us who work in moral emotions. We probably cite it in like everything we write. Mm -hmm. um, it is, uh, the idea is when you come across an emotion that seems morally incorrigible, the temptation that people have is to say that it's irrational. So the classic example that they give in the paper is jealousy. Um, because jealousy seems bad to feel, morally bad to feel, morally wrong to feel. It therefore must be irrational in some way. Mm -hmm. And they call that the moralistic fallacy. So just because an emotion is morally bad, it doesn't mean that it is mistaken or irrational somehow. So jealousy, for example, look, if somebody is, is you know, hitting on your partner and that's not your romantic partner and that's it. it you, that bothers you right you may not um that may be it may be petty it may be immature it may be all sorts of unfortunate there may be all sorts of unfortunate moral things that it means that you're jealous about that particular situation but in their view that's not irrational it is it you can give a kind of internal logic for how jealousy works such that it makes sense that you would feel jealousy in that particular case so mm -hmm. i agree with them on a lot of those fronts that the idea that sort of shame 
again, from the kind of pessimistic side, the idea that shame, you well, we feel shame about all these things that we don't have control over, therefore it must be irrational. My response to that is, or maybe shame is the kind of thing that we feel in a wide variety of cases, some of which we actually do feel things about, we feel shame about things we can't control. And in fact, that should be part of the story we tell about shame. So just because we feel shame about things we can't control doesn't make it irrational. It just might mean that's actually what shame is. That's the sort of thing that it is. And how are you using rational here? How, how are they using rational in this kind of context where it makes sense to say, I mean, I, I tend to agree that there can be a difference between rational and moral. Mm -hmm. I'm just like for folks who aren't as as um, sort of well versed in these things, yeah. is there it might sound a little weird to hear someone say, you know, well, we can very well agree that this has bad consequences in a mm -hmm. variety of ways and is immoral in a variety of ways, but it's not strictly speaking irrational. Right. Um, I guess the, yeah, so this is, this is part of actually a thing that is kind of on my mind right now as um, mm -hmm. the, in my own work is this conceptions of rationality are now kind of uh, coming back into the forefront where I left practical reasoning literature a long time ago because I found it like horribly boring in a lot of ways. Cause there was Fair. a lot of like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of formalization in those papers and I just sure. get my brain, like I tend to like my eyes glaze over when you start putting things in formalized sentences, but, their conception of rationality is is a kind of well it must be mis like badly mistaken somehow there's a sense of error that they have in their irrationality that um that you're making some that in being jealous of someone you're making some kind of mistake for example you are seeing mm -hmm. your romantic partner's affection as an as a limited resource and it's not that sort of thing and their kind of interactions with other people don't determine your interactions so it it's the way that they tend to think about that is the way they tend to think about rationality is there's some kind of mistake being made on the part of the mm -hmm. agent who feels um, jealousy. So it must be mistaken somehow. The emotion itself is somehow mistaken. And that's right. the, and I think that's what a lot of people think about shame that like, oh, you are mistaken if you feel shame about something that you can't control. You're making a mistake. And if we could just correct that mistake, your emotion would go away. Right. A good example that might feel a little bit more neutral might be something like grief, right? Where like, right. you know, people are going to die, you experience mm -hmm. the death and you still feel the grief. And there are some cultures that'll say, you know, that grief is irrational and you should just right. let go of that person. Right. Um, and it seems like what you're saying is even if there are some costs to that grief, mm -hmm. it, it should still be a part of the the whole moral picture that we engage in in our lives. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of the other like practical costs. At least yeah. I, I buy this. I buy this in principle. Um, but you, <laughs> you do mention, for example, things like you know, shame often expresses itself through aggressive behavior. Right. A lot of coping mechanisms involve violence in many cases. Yeah. Um, is there any way that we can sort of functionally disentangle shame from those violent tendencies so that like we can do as you wish and continue to allow people to feel shame without mm -hmm. having to worry about, you know, as much spousal abuse or things like that right. as a result? Definitely. Yeah, I think that's true. So I so I wouldn't want to say that the aggression in shame is sort of um, it's not it's not conceptually linked to shame. Mm -hmm. I think, as I put it in the book, I think it's a kind of coping mechanism that people experience. They experience many different coping mechanisms um, in response to the feelings of shame. I think the reason I think what I wanted to do with the account was be able to explain why such a reaction would be tempting. Like, why is it that people why would somebody feel do aggressive things, right? Or feel mm -hmm. um, a certain kind of aggression in response to shame. And the story that I try to tell in the book is that it, 
um, we feel powerless. Shame makes us feel powerless because we feel sure. our self-conception sort of diminished in this moment. And uh, for what it's, you know, for better or worse, violence makes us feel powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons that people are sort of attracted to it as a kind of coping mechanism for shame, as an alleviation of shame. But I don't see any kind of conceptual connection. And so I like to give the example of um, Hester Prynne from The Scarlet Letter, who lives this life of shame and uh, in part of her coping with those with those experiences, she becomes this figure that's a kind of... Um, uh, a home and a port in the storm for various kinds of misfits and other people who are on the outskirts of society. So she mm -hmm. ends up doing a lot of these good things for people who have nowhere else to go um, as a response to sort of uh, as feelings of kind of like solidarity with those people, right? So here's a person who uh, kind of incorporates her shame into who she is in a healthy way that doesn't involve any kind of um, any kind of aggression. So if that's sort of thing is conceptually possible. I That's think it's such a controversial possible. example for you to use. <laughs> yeah. To take, to take, I mean, it would take such a classic example of like, you know, per, per patriarchal regressive culture shaming <laughs> someone in a situation where they shouldn't right. be shamed and saying, right. you know, well, she turned it around in silver linings. Like you can, I can just, I can hear the, you know, lefty in my head howling at the <laughs> idea that like we should be in any way happy about any of the way that things worked out in that particular story. Oh, so, no. I mean, I, but, yeah, that's I, I, one I of what the you're things saying. I love yeah. about her, right? Is she's this kind of, she has, she develops this entirely alternative identity because mm -hmm. of the position that she's been put in. And it's not, that's not to say like it's redemptive in the sense that it makes up for all of the terrible things that she suffered, but here's somebody who it, it being put in that position is what allowed her the space to be able to be this new kind of person. So, I mean, in effect, what we're saying is, right, violence is something that you see that is a coping mechanism for a lot of things because sure. generally speaking, what we're coping with is some version of loss of a feeling of control. Yeah. And that's an often a good way to get back a sense of control. But you can also right. develop a stronger sense of control through things like building community right. um, and, and helping others as well. Mm -hmm. It's just maybe our culture doesn't uh, reinforce those alternatives quite as effectively. Right. That's right. Okay. So I'm curious, what do you worry about most with your account of shame, right? And all of like, <laughs> what keeps you up at night right. about like, if I spread this across the world, what's what's the bad thing that happens? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, uh, gosh, I don't, I guess the thing that would keep me up about that is that there might be implications to it that I haven't thought through and that there might mm -hmm. be people who read this and go like, oh, you know what? That makes me think I should do this. And then I go, oh, no, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought that you would actually take it in those ways. And that's part of the interesting thing about the reception that I've gotten from the book is so interesting because lots of people have, you know, wonderfully, very generously said lovely things about it. Um, but then there are things that people will say about it. Then I go, really? You got that from, from my book? Oh, that's funny. Hmm. I didn't, I never anticipated that. Um, I guess the thing I worry about is uh, I don't want people, I don't want people to sort of use this as an excuse to um, kind of 
lord shame over people. So that mm. there's a, I think there's a worry that if you defend shame, I think all of us who would defend shame, I think have this worry that, that you won't be heard in your nuance, in your defense of shame, and that you'll then be pointed to as an example of, oh, yes, that's right. This person exists on the side of, you know, our wonderful traditional small C conservative values that's mm. trying to sort of keep order in society um, because a lot, of, I think there's some portion of the population that thinks about shame as a kind of anecdote to to a sort of what they see as like uh, lawlessness. Uh, mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. you know, society's going, oh, there's so many things happening and so many things are changing and we need to keep some order and shame is part of that order. Um, yeah. And that's, I think that for me, I, I don't want to be... I don't want to sort of be simply lumped into, uh, you know, defending the order of society sort of view. And I think there are some folks who who want to marshal shame in those kinds uh-huh. of ways. That's the part that I think I worry about, probably. So in terms not, of like like popular fully, conception. You're not like fully in the statist cut camp, but you're, no, right, you're right, like, right. you know, right. there's so, there's some role. for. And I've actually, you know what I've realized now? I've done this entire interview poorly. The fact that you're interested in naked shame. I, I should have just asked you about the word cuck and like done an hour <laughs> on how, how oh, was no. your entire field reinvented by the spread of this idea of naked shame as oh, uh, no. the way that everyone <laughs> this is, this is terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> did y'all, did you like write a paper on cuck when that word became popular did you like teach about it in your class did you just like quietly (laughs) pretend that you didn't know this was happening no and i am i have to be honest i am uh, i am not up on the lingo man like i kind of don't even really have a good sense of what that word means myself like i have a general sense of what that word means but not like totally we should collaborate um a journal in this uh no this is a concept of of someone watching usually watching their partner have sex and like the mix of shame and pleasure that they get from that oh, it comes from right. a traditional cuckolded where oh you know, right 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 i got it yes you, gr- you literally grow the horns on your head if your partner slept right. with someone else was the old right. style version of this so, i see yeah. i see there's oh. a lot to work with there. Well, you I think know you what's so what's funny about this is I'm actually working on I'm working on a chapter for a volume on philosophy of sex on sex and shame. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's still room. I there can work go. that in. Yeah, I would I would strongly recommend you Google cuck. And okay. <laughs> I maybe I would I, go, go incognito first. I would say maybe we're all working from home now, work, so yeah. it's safer, right? <laughs> right. Um, okay, so other things I wanted to ask you about. Speaking of our our social media environment, oh right. How right. does how does your implication of uh, what are the implications of your view of shame for our kind of current social media situation there's a lot of debate about shame and cancel culture and all these kind of things where are you in that um hellscape at this point yeah right (laughs) this is uh yeah this is so i i it's funny because i know my view has sort of implications for this thing and then the fifth chapter of the book is about this but um i actually really want to divorce the the conversation about shaming from the emotion of shame in Mm -hmm. part because i think these things are people think these things are related in ways that i think they're not actually obviously related um Mm. that uh the moral psychology i want to do you know my normal moral psychology stuff because that's the stuff that i love and and the applied stuff is important, but it's I think it's I think of it as different because I think most of what we're doing online is the shaming practice where it's not clear to me that when people shame online, they're actually trying to get the other person who they're shaming to feel shame. 
Mm-hmm. I think most of the time when we're shaming online, it's a kind of tool of sort of social coercion, essentially. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between shaming practice and shaming feelings. Um, and shaming practice is what we see online where people are most of the time just calling a lot of negative communal attention to somebody who has engaged in some kind of behavior that they think of as unacceptable as a way of saying, as a way of saying this behavior is unacceptable, both to the person who engages in it, but also to the kind of community at large. Mm-hmm. And then the question becomes, wh- why do we do that? And should we do that? And the answer, I think, to the latter question is no, I think we should not do that. Now, do you th- is this different, do you think, from like if I shame you in person, right, is that does that actually have a close connection to trying to make you feel shame? Or is it, you know, basically the more people are watching when I engage in that activity, the more it slides towards performative rather than about actually evoking the emotion? Yes. So I tend to think that interpersonal interactions where I actually don't even want to qualify those as shaming exactly because Hmm. they're not meant to be public. And I think shaming really is meant to be public. Um, I think most of the time what we do in interactions, interpersonal interactions is what I call invitations to shame. So we can Hmm. do things that we where we try to kind of bring about a certain sort of realization in somebody's behavior. You know, you have the, the colleague who like will not shut up about the new book or whatever and you're like oh wow no i really tell me about that for the 500th time i'm really excited mm-hmm. to hear you know the kind of sarcastic remarks and that sort of thing that i think do invite people to go oh you know what maybe i've talked about that book a little bit too much or something like that that inviting that kind of realization in the interpersonal cases i think does have a closer connection to the emotion because you are trying to kind of it's a it's a kind of realization you're trying to bring about whereas i think uh-huh. for most for the most part in on online shaming, I think people might want that realization from the person who's being shamed that what they did was offensive, but mostly what they want is a kind of performative, this is not our community and I want everybody to sort of see that this person, hold this person up as a kind of negative example. Right. The the idea, you know, the example that comes to mind for me, of course, and this is, again, referencing books that people need to stop talking about is would be the Game of Thrones with the lady with the bell, right? Walking oh, right, along right. behind the queen, like shouting yeah. shame over and over right. and ringing the bell. Right. There's like, yeah. there's something so fundamentally internet about that, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> right. So you in that chapter distinguish between shame, invitations to shame, as you explained, shaming itself and stigmatizing. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, what, what is the what is the difference there conceptually? between those that that you feel like is important to highlight and Mm -hmm. why is it that only one of them is morally acceptable? Right. Yeah. So I I think the invitations to shame, I really want to say those are the interpersonal interactions, right? And those are, Mm -hmm. you know, forms of kind of, you know, moral communication that happens between individuals that I think is, you know, pretty, it's inside the bounds of, of kind of normal communication. Shaming, I think it essentially has this kind of marshalling of communal attention aspect of it. So it's really about publicizing what this person has done, um, mainly to communicate a sort of message to the community about this kind of behavior being out of bounds. And then stigmatizing is about uh, manipulating someone's social standing. So 
making them into a kind of hmm. member of this particular class or not, or labeling them in a certain sort of way in a social asp in a sort of social setting um, where we do things like, like for example, you know, publishing the names of people who don't vote in the last election. That's a kind of hmm. we're stigmatizing those people as the non-voters or the lazy citizens or something like that. So a lot All of right. stigmatizing is about label affixing. The, the um, Chinese uh, credit system they're currently setting right. up. We need to exactly. get you on Philosophers in Space to talk nosedive from Black Mirror. I don't know if you're familiar I with that particular I episode. I'm so, no, I have no, not watched okay. Black it's, Mirror. Uh, no, it's just an episode I'm, about a you know, I'm a very bad at points. pop culture, as it turns out. <laughs> uh, see, I do like 95% of my philosophy via pop culture, so you <laughs> okay. just have to accept that I have to tie everything back to a reference to something. Right, um, right. It's just the only way my brain works. Um, <laughs> right. Okay, so so stigmatizing the re the reducing yeah. of someone's status. You're not mm -hmm. in favor of that, and right. you're not in favor of the public kind of shaming. You just right. want people to continue to like nudge their friends into being slightly less dicks, essentially. Yes, okay. right, definitely. That's a plausible position. I think that. I mean, I think so, but you know, it's yeah. mine. So. Well, yeah, and at the end of the book, you tie it to something that fully endeared me to you, which is um, Wolf's Moral Saints, Yay! the the oh, yeah, right, the much beloved section where everyone feels slightly less guilty about all of the ethical considerations right. that we've built up in all of our other readings. I, do, exactly. I, I teach Moral Saints at the end of all my ethics classes to be oh, like, oh, that's great. It's okay. It's okay. That's great. That's awesome. um, but yeah, do you want to talk about how your view mm -hmm. about these negative emotions ties in with this idea that like some Sometimes morality asks us to be saints that we don't necessarily right. need to be. That's um, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think at this point, I think moral psychology, those of us who work on moral emotions, I think there's a kind of reckoning that I would like to have. Um, there are people who have defended negative emotions in moral psychology and they've done, you know, a fantastic job. And I think we have all, those of us who work in this area sort of have opened up the field to include a little bit more emotional complexity. But I think it still hasn't quite taken the next step that I want to see it take, which is the sort of acknowledgement that there, all of these emotions, these negative emotions that those of us have tried to defend, we now need to think to ourselves, okay, are we going to remain committed to this idea of the overall positive psychology of a, of a good person? Because I think even though there are these defenses that exist of negative emotions, there there's still this lingering allegiance to, right, I guess those things are fine, except that overall, it would still be better if we either didn't feel them or feel them less. That mm -hmm. would still be better. So the idea that the more positively emotional person is still a better person, and that even if we're not super capable of doing this we should try our best to do it and that for me is the message from moral saints is mm -hmm. whether or not that's right is that actually something to which we should aspire should mm -hmm. we try to be emotional saints or not and of course my answer is no this is not a life that's not a psychology, that's not an emotional psychology that we should try to strive for, um, that, that we need to actually call into question whether or not this really is an aspiration that we should have. 
Yeah, there's a kind of perfectionism to that mm-hmm. kind of view of flourishing or, right. you know, deontology or utilitarianism, however you cash out your sainthood. Right. But like you see it and you see the concern, I think, often raised with folks like Aristotle that there is a, a creeping elitism to right. this kind of view that if you're going to say, you know, all things considered, it would be. And like it's, it's very mm-hmm. tempting to say all things considered, I would rather you never experience shame in the course of your right. life. Right. But I think that's only achievable it seems like if you are the kind of hollowed out narcissist that is currently running the country for example right like (laughs) other than that it's very difficult to lead a fully good life in a complex world without having some at least one case of justified shame right Um, right exactly exactly yeah yeah. But as you're saying, right, we don't even want to put it in terms necessarily of justified shame yeah. because that is the implication still there that you are making up for some moral bad in some kind right. of way. Right. Um, the idea that, you know, yeah, it's we don't have to be um, the, the kinds of people that we want to be. This is going to entail a, a, a rich emotional life that's going to have to include our negative emotions. Mm hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I'm interested to see your your future work on other yeah. negative emotions. I want to have yes. you back on, of course, to talk about all Definitely. the other. I, hopefully we can tie them all to nakedness and cuckoldry. But, you know, <laughs> I, I know that might be challenging. For you know, some of the it's going to be a little difficult, but but we'll see. OK, but in the meantime, I have to now inflict a bunch of shame on you with the lightning round. Oh, no. Um, OK. So if you're not familiar with this and folks who are listening for the first time at home, um, I will give you a list of things. You will tell me if those things are real or not real. Those okay. are your two options. Okay, you're not allowed not to real. hedge. Okay, you're not allowed no to explain in any kind okay. of way. Okay? OK, do you understand? All right. I do. OK, so I got to prime okay. you first. Is okay. anything real? Yes. Okay, something is real. Let's find out what it is. Is <laughs> the external world real? Yes. Okay. Colors? Yes. Is phenomenal consciousness real? Yes. Free will? Yes. Selves or persons? Yes. Genders? Mm, yes. Races? Mm, yes. Species? No, those aren't real. Okay, there's the line. I'm going to find it eventually. Uh, morality? Yes. Rights? Yes. Knowledge? Yes. Gods or God? Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> Society? No, that's not real. Numbers? No, those are definitely not real. Mm, fictional characters? Oh, I have my students write a paper about this in intro. <laughs> um, yes, they're real. Okay. Holes, as in a hole in the ground? Yes, I love this conversation. Um, <laughs> yes, it's real. Uh, chairs? No, chairs are not real. Mm, sandwiches? Sandwiches are definitely real. Okay. Science? No, science is not real. Natural laws? No, those aren't real either. No. Okay. Beauty? Yeah, beauty's real. Okay. Causality? No, definitely not real. Okay. Dharmas? Uh, I'm going to go with no. Okay. And just for you, shame? Definitely real. 
Okay. How much shame do you feel? How are you doing? You survived. A lot. A lot. <laughs> Those were all inconsistent answers. I can just tell. <laughs> and as a it's philosopher, okay. I feel a lot of shame about inconsistency. Don't worry. I'll just email your students later and share this <laughs> okay. particular audio file with them. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, you did a great job. Uh, congratulations. You survived. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, absolutely. This has been um, so much fun, Krista. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your work and give the name of the uh, amazing book about nakedness one more time? Oh, yes. That's right. Yes. So I am the author of Naked, The Dark Side of Shame and Moral Life. And it was published in 2018 with Oxford University Press. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to all our listeners, and especially to our patrons who make the show possible. I want to give a shout out to two new patrons. One is the T for Two podcast, and another is a top tier $40 a month patron who has chosen to remain anonymous, which means we can cross backed by dark money off our cult bingo card. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And as always, I must thank our top tier patrons, our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Volunteer this summer. Learn more at campquest.org. Certainly got your money's worth on that one this week. Uh, Chad T and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thanks to our forever and eternity top patron, Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you are an eccentric billionaire or if you notice just a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. But most importantly, remember... You are the void, and the void is you.